Simon Wollstonecroft is a drummer from Manchester. His first band at school was with Ian Brown and John Squire. His second band became The Smiths. He played with The Fall for 11 years and continues to play drums for Manchester bands today. Johnny Marr nicknamed him Funky Sai. This is Funky Sai's A to Z of Manchester. Hello, Simon. You OK? I'm fine, Jackie. How are you today? I'm all right, eh? What have you been up to? Well, enjoying the weather today, 30 degrees. I've been listening, well, swatting up on a forthcoming session with a band called Lucy Genic, um, fronted by a girl called Lucy Watt. I'm in the studio on the 2nd of July, recording three songs with them. So I'm just getting it all ready, f- familiarising myself with the... Uh, with the tracks. Oh, great, OK. She sounds a bit like uh, Pauline Murray a bit, or maybe a little bit of Susie. It's very good. So I'm looking forward to that. So, so what, what's the situation with you then and bands? Do you just, if somebody says, will you come and do a bit of drumming for us, you just always say yes? Well, no, it's not possible to do that. <laughs> well, I'm doing this uh, for a fee, basically. My own stuff... I'll get people in, I won't pay them. <laughs> but but, but uh, they, they want to be on the record. And, you know, I think I, could, I suit my, my drumming suits. Uh, oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So people just track you down and, and ask yeah, you to get, in, much. get involved. On Facebook, really. I get stuff all the time. You know, people send him, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Some of it's really good. Yeah, Lucy, uh, I promised her I'd do this about a year ago. Onwards and upwards with Lucy Jennings. Great, okay. Right, well, we are on week, I've no idea, I can't remember. It's but the, well, letter H. We're on the letter H, yeah, or H. It annoys people when people say it wrong. <laughs> Well, my first one is Hume, uh, the area of Manchester, just to the south of the city. Uh, when I was 17, started hanging around there with Ian and John. Ian got a flat there in Charles Barry Crescent, the old Crescents uh, that were notoriously... Well, they got to a no-go area for the police eventually, but had some great times there. That's where Ian uh, met Gino Washington, came to his girlfriend Michelle's party, 21st, and uh, said to Ian, wow, look, he'd been playing in town, Gino. Okay. I don't know where. And he wanted to have a party and somebody brought him back. It was slim, actually. The security guy and somebody else, it might have been the, uh, Glenn the Glue, I'm not sure. <laughs> but but uh, they brought um, Gino back and they were having a party and it was going up, you know, going off in one of the actual flats. But uh, Gino Washington said, Look at you, Ian, what a star you are. Look at all the girls around you, you've got a great look. Are you a singer? Why don't, why don't you write some songs? You should be in a band. And so he'd been in the patrol, but it was just pretty much punk rock. But he said, you know, I did a bit of poetry at school, I liked doing that. And uh, that was the beginning, really, of when they started calling it the Stone Roses. Wow. In Hume. But it was a great place. There was lots of parties. And uh, I saw uh, Robert Kilroy Silt once, towards the end, before it all got knocked down. He was doing a special on Viraj Mendes who took refuge in the church next to the PSV. I remember. And I, I remember him leaving. I was walking past. He was in a right rush, a bit like Eno was, when he wanted to get back to London. But, yeah, just nothing but fond memories, really, of Hume. Did you live in Hume? No, I never did. I was still at home. John had a flat in uh, 
short and he asked me to you know share the flat with him but it's pretty expensive so I just bided my time so about 1985 I think um, which is quite old really isn't it to leave home why how old were you when you left home then well I was born in 63 so 20 22 23 not really mm-hmm. well, not by the standards these days no that's true they, and they're never can, leaving home kids can you blame days. them you know well no it's hard to get on the property ladder I've told my kids they're not allowed to leave till they're in their 40s <laughs> I don't want them to go oh, <laughs> I know nice. Hume though was pretty grim I mean I moved a friend of mine into his flat it was all metal doors and yeah the cockroaches and cockroaches everywhere they were huge and they were everywhere you know I as mean, soon as you turn the light on I'm a celebrity get me out of here <laughs> you'd be fine coping if you'd lived in Hume for a bit. Yeah, well, those cockroaches came about because um, when the flats were built, the crescents, as they were known, the wood to the timber that was used, I think it came from Scandinavia somewhere, and it was infested with these beetles, you know, cockroaches, before it even got here. So, you know, it wasn't a good start, really. But what a fun playground it was. It, It was an exciting time. I was meeting new people all the time. Johnny and myself, we used to go up there, hanging out, you know, in Hume. And everybody was dead friendly, but you had to watch yourself, you know. Cause it was young there, wasn't it? There were a lot of young people living there. Absolutely, all artists, the Inca babies. John Robb, later on, uh, John, John Robb, I still see him, he's a fixture, you know, running along, doing his uh, exercise regime. You see him a mile away, John, you know, with his hair. Yeah. <laughs> but I do like seeing John on the breakfast news, you know, and he's, they bring him in quite a lot, don't they, on TV in, in the morning. And uh, I met lots of people. Dub Sex were there, and I ended up being on the cover of their LP, a picture of me, which was shot just under the arches at Cornbrook, where the tram go, you know, loads of scrapyards around it. And Todd Graft did that. He was another one who lived in Hume. Very clever guy. He ended up doing the lights for David Guetta in Ibiza and had a big company out there. But still keeping touch with Todd. So, yeah, what a great place. I have mentioned the Hacienda before. It was through Johnny, really. I got the initial invite, probably off Rob Gretton, to be, you know, to be a member. And so we started going in 82. I didn't go to the opening night uh, in 82. It was May. I went in June, I think, the first time. But Bernard Manning was on, and <laughs> uh, surprisingly. And it was empty, it was always empty. It was freezing cold. Bernard Manning, he, he, you know, he wanted his wages in advance on the contract before, but he, he went up to Tony Wilson and said, look, keep your money, Tony, you're going to need it. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Madonna was there. Uh, very early on in 82, didn't go to that either. Most of the time, I was downstairs in the Gay Trader bar with a picture of Kim Philby, the fifth man, down there. It, it kind of I met a lot of heads down in that bar. All sorts of going on. I met Robbie Williams in there after he got booted out of the uh, take that. <laughs> He'd come out for a night out uh, with Manny. He was there, I remember. It, it was a great club. I got a free pass right from day one, so I could skip by the queue, so it was great. When there was a queue, because from 82 to 87, really, 
Yeah. It was empty, wasn't it? It was, it was. And when you hear of the Hacienda, you hear of all the rave nights, and it wasn't like that for the first five years. It was indie nights, Dave Aslam. Oh, you could be on the dance floor on your own. I mean, I loved going to the Thursday night. The the gigs were different, you know, when the Smiths played there. I think they flew back, no, got the train back from Sop of the Pops on a Thursday, and they had crates and crates of gladioli, uh, you know, brought with them. Uh, I went to that one, and it, it was a home from home. I used to go in the cafe on, when I was working at County Hall as a chef, finished work about four, parked me uh, the white chariot outside on Whitworth Street. You could back in them days. And I'd have something to eat, and then I'd pick Tracy Donnelly, who's, of course, related to um, Anthony. And, and worked uh, for Factory? Yes, she did, and yeah. the office is upstairs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was very familiar with the whole place. I like going upstairs as well to this pinball machine area. Yes, which is where I met Mark. That's right. You yeah, saw he, me, was, didn't you? he was playing. Was the he pi- playing pinball? He was playing pinball and he was on his own, and I was with my friend Lee. Okay. And Lee could not believe that Mark E. Smith was in there. It was a Thursday night. Like we said, it was empty. Yeah. You know, it was a student night. I said, well, go and speak to him then. And he said, I can't speak to him, it's Marquis Smith. And so, of course, I bowled over like I do. And I I had a chat. Well, we got on great, and that's when he said... I wouldn't have known you otherwise, would I? No. And he said, did you want to come and be in a play in London? And, of course, I said, yes, of course I do. Can you remember what pinball machine it was? No. Because I love, you know, some really great ones out there. The old ones. Yeah. They made a great noise. You know, you could feel them. Because we'd all seen Pinball Wizard. You know, as a who. I mean, it was the greatest club because it felt like it was your club. That it was did. what was great about it. You know, without that, well, there still would have been a music scene. The Roses weren't signed to Factory, for instance. But because Tony Wilson invested in all that, it did change the whole face of Manchester music forever. Without a doubt. I mean, you just don't get that sort of thing now. No, uh, it's the fact that they continually put money into something that wasn't making money just for the joy of having that as a venue, which you've got to applaud them for that. Oh, and I do. I do. Yeah. I was so grateful to be them. Now. Because between 86, <laughs> so I started going in 86, the summer of 86, and I went till about 92 when it first closed down, when yeah. it first closed it. I didn't really go after that because I thought the music was rubbish. But that whole 88 to 91 period when all that music was coming over from America... Yeah. I mean, those nights were great where we would, it'd always finish at two, the lights had come up and we'd applaud the DJ. That's right, they did at the end of the night. The whole room would applaud him. I was always hanging about the DJ box, with it be, you know, Andrew Berry, uh, our weed singer, stroke hairdresser, stroke DJ. (laughs) Man of many talents, Andrew. Dave Aslam. Mike Pickering. Mike Pickering's another one. John De Silva. Yes, John De Silva. Graham Park. I didn't really get to know Graham. The one with the beard? Yes. Right, yeah. He seems friendly enough, guy. They were they all great nights. They the were. Friday, Friday nights became huge. I mean, Thursday nights, the indie nights grew a bit, but it was the Friday and Saturday nights that were Yeah, that just, was the moneymaker, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and then obviously with the queues. And you used to stand in the queue and then you'd send people over to the city road to get some drinks and then bring them back. Sometimes being in the queue was hilarious. What, smuggling the drinks then? Well, you know, because you'd be in the queue for so long that you'd have finished those drinks. Right. They weren't selling much beer by that time, though, were they, in the Acid House days? It was, no. They popping pills, everybody, weren't they? It was and a lot drinking of water. gallons of water, Yeah, like I am. But do you remember, there was, um, it was Red Stripe, 
It yes, it was. Cans of breaker. Yeah. And the, and the toilets were covered in wee. <laughs> the toilets were a disgrace. I mean, what was it? We loved. We loved it, though. Yeah, we did. But it was the greatest club. Yeah. There was something about it. That's how Martin Hannett fell out with uh, Tony, didn't he? You know, all the money was going in there, into the club. And it, Martin Hannett had produced Joy Division and um, Tappy Mundy's album. And World of Twist. Yes, I think he did, World of yeah. Twist was one of the last things he worked guy, on. Wasn't he was a clever guy, I only met him in his later days when he became, you know, very obese and was going downhill. I went for a band meeting with a girl, Ailey Bradley, to discuss, you know, recording, and uh, it never happened. Hacienda absolutely loved it. I mean, I feel now though that we can't really talk about it because you mention it and people roll their eyes a bit. You know, because I think too many people have tried to make money out of it over Absolutely. the years. Yeah. And, it, and it really annoys me because I think, no, leave it alone. Leave it what it was. Yeah, I'm glad I started going at the beginning and saw it all the way through. But as I say, I never I was hardly ever on the dance floor. I used to stand in that bit under uh, under the balcony as soon as you walk in next to the cafe. Through the plastic doors. All the rummens were. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you were with that lot, were you? Yeah. And well, we had a spot where we always stood, and it was sort of directly below the DJ booth, underneath the oh, yeah. you know, in the seated yeah. bits there. I'm just glad that we were there at that time. Yeah, I think that it was great. They did 24 hour party people because it looked like it and everything. And there's some great characters, including Mark Smith's cameo himself. I think he was talking to Peter Kay, wasn't he? Yes, About that's his right. Jaguar. Yeah, <laughs> she's thirsty. That's what uh, Peter Kay said to Mark about this jag that was parked outside. We had some great nights at the Hacienda. We did, and uh, when I joined the fall, uh, me and Mark used to go out, leave bricks at home, watching TV or whatever, uh, choosing clothes and stuff, and we'd go out and have a right good time, (laughs) me and Mark. But uh, when when it was the Troubles, uh, the gang wars, you know, the Moss Side and the Cheaty Mill Guns were at each other's throats, literally. We got stopped going out one night. You know, there was a guy outside, and all the bouncers were cowering around the, you know, under the shutters, and they put the shutters down. Mark said, "We want to go. We want to go. We want to go home or somewhere else." And he said, "No, you can't. You can't." And oh, uh, so you were in the club, and they wouldn't let you out? No, they wouldn't. Not for about twenty, thirty minutes. I think there was a helicopter going over, and because uh, there were shots fired at the door, weren't there? there was, was that that night? Probably. Right. Yeah, yeah. They were really frightened. The bouncers. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, some of them, you know, uh, hardened doormen who worked there. Fred, the little guy, he was sort of the boss. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, the bow tie, and they got another lot of security, <laughs> and I don't think it could be uh, contained anymore. All the troubles. So making so, these gangs are making so much money, and well, the the, pro- the other problem was they had uh, metal detectors, didn't they, to stop people taking. Did they work? Well, it was ridiculous because we all had to, normal punters, you know, people going in, <laughs> yeah, go through you, the metal detectors. You had to go through it anyway, didn't you? Yeah, but the people who actually had the things that they were trying to find, they could get in no trouble. Yeah, around the back. Yeah. yeah so the whole thing was ridiculous. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it shut once and then it shut again and that was it. But, but it was in those... I mean, I went in probably 94, 95, and it was grim in those days. It, it Falling down, it was... They weren't spending money on it. I mean, it was packed every weekend still. Sure. But it just looked terrible. It looked a bit grim. I didn't go in much then. I'd be on the road a lot 
from you know 88 89 yeah it did it was, it was a bit sad really so uh, yeah. i was glad when it finally closed because yeah. i thought you've had it you've had your time would i live there probably would yeah they seem all right those flats the train might be a bit noisy you know you got your, got your <laughs> door open <laughs> OK, well, it's Steve Hanley, the Colossus, on bass for The Fall, the Enforcer. Mark's right-hand man for most of the time. Bricks sort of took control when, when they were married. And she was, you know, quite pushy Bricks and made him do this and wear that and not do this song and do that song. But Steve was always there in the background all the way through. And uh, he looked after me when I first joined... Although, when I first joined, I was sharing a room with Greg Scanlon. He used to freak me out, though, because his eyes used to open in the middle of the night. You know, big... <laughs> He'd never shut his eyes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I did share with Steve. Um, I Is shared... this when you're on tour? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's not like, you know, the monkeys or something. You all shared oh, no, one big house no, no. together. <laughs> no, I was 23 then, when I first started with that. <laughs> Too old for that. <laughs> A distinctive bass sound, the signature sound of the fall, mostly is down to him, Steve. Very reliable. You keep an eye on him when you're playing because Mark would go miss a verse out or start the chorus too early and quickly we'd have to, well, Steve and me would computate what we're going to do next, you know, in the song. To sort of catch without up. Without it looking uh, like we're total amateurs. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it was great like that with Steve, you know, very reliable. And, and he, like, isn't he a lovely man? He is. Yes. Yeah. He, yes, quiet man. Did uh, 17 years with the band. I only did 11. When it came to the end of my uh, tenure in 97, down at Edwin Collins' studio in West Hampstead, me and uh, Steve was in a flea pit, a bed and breakfast nearby. By now, Mark's in a nice apartment near um, Lord's Cricket Ground. But uh, the message came through from Julia. Right, Mark says, drop everything you're doing. We're just going to do my songs from now on. And I just thought, oh, God, you know. But Steve uh, he begged me to stay, you know, to of course keep he the did. unit together. Yeah, he wanted... It was, uh, some... I think it was Levitate, the album which I have, I do play on half of it, but I quit halfway through, you know, in disgust, really. And, and Steve continued after that then? He did, and all the way to about 1999, I think. And of course, that, there was that big episode in New York City at Brown's Nightclub where Carl Burns, who'd come back, my predecessor, rejoined as the full-time drummer after I got... There was a big scrap, well, I say a big scrap, Proper fist flying on stage during the gig. Who between? Carl and Mark. It didn't last very long, but Mark was totally shocked when Carl got up from behind his kit uh, because he started pushing Carl's equipment over as he was playing, which he did a lot, Mark. Did it to me as well. And, of course, I ended up fighting with Mark as well in Athens in Greece. And Why did he do that? I, I mean, I saw him one night and he was going around turning everybody's monitors down. Oh, he, he loved it. He I'd t- never seen him pushing equipment over, but I'd, I'd seen him and I kept thinking, leave everybody's guitars alone, what are you doing? No, he liked to wind everybody up. But if he thought it sounded crap, the sound on stage, he would. Just twiddle any old knob and hope it got better. Sometimes it might have done, but most of the time it just angered us. There'd be all sorts of uh, arguments after... 
beer bottles thrown in the dressing room. Did Steve and him get on well for most of the time? For most of the time, uh, Mark would rely on Steve. He'd ring up, say, Steve, can you put that van from Salford Van Eyre? <laughs> you know, we've got a John Peel session on uh, Wheat Tuesday. Make sure it's all sorted, will you? And, and which he did, you know, dutifully, really. I didn't get involved in all that. I had to go up every week to Mark's house to collect the, the wages. For me, Steve, Craig, and then Dave Bush... I was nominated to go up to Mark's house, knock on, and he'd have four cheques there for us, you know, which uh, then had to come back and deliver them in South Manchester again. Steve was, as I say, very reliable. He always had a clean shirt ironed. He'd always have his iron out in the room. You know, when, when we were sharing, eventually I got my own room. <laughs> but uh, Steve was very concerned. I used to have stomach ulcer. I remember being in Berlin in agony. <laughs> on the tile floor in the bathroom, you know, to try and ease the pain, because uh, it was so cold, the floor, <laughs> drinking milk and stuff. And he was, he was very concerned for me, Steve. You know, it's quite touching, really. And he used to do all his washing there in the sink in the hotel. Me, Steve and Craig, really. For you the... were in your own little gang, weren't you, you three? Yeah, we were, yeah. Which was good and nice for you all. Yeah, it was. We could rely on each other, you know, after each gig would take the rider home to the hotel, what was left of it, which was most of it. What was the full rider? It was a couple of bottles of Moe, no Shoei, a bottle of vodka, a bottle of whiskey for Mark, 24 or 48 assorted cans of beer, a little deli thing. But we'd uh, take the vodka and we'd get back to our rooms, decide whose room we were going to go in. The next thing you know, it'd be Mark... We used to sometimes keep quiet, you know, <laughs> if, we, if we did, just couldn't fancy it, you know, talking, because we knew he was in a mood or whatever. But so he probably had his tape recorder behind us to see already, you know, taping us. <laughs> so, yeah, we got the vodka, and the first thing we did was crack open the, you know, Finlandia or whatever it was. Orange juice, ice, and, and Craig Scanlon, he always, he had a tradition, he'd, he'd take a massive goal for this, practically neat vodka. And he'd go, Arr, Jim, lad. <laughs> we didn't start laughing. <laughs> and then we were all, that was off then. It was yeah. a party. Yeah. And, you know, Bricks might come round, uh, or Marsha, or the pair of them, which is nice. You know, it's lovely to have the girls there. You know, Bricks, as I said, she was keeping control of Mark, reining him back in, you know, buying him nice Armani um, suits and what have you. Changed his image. She did soften the sound making it more poppy, but I thought that was great. So, yeah, that's Steve. Lovely man. Yeah, he is. My next H is the play Hey Luciani, written by Mark. It was about the suspicious death of John Pope Paul I. I think this was 1980. And he, he was only in the Vatican um, about three weeks before the white smoke came out, you know, of that chimney, signalling the end, you know, the passing of the, the last Pope. Uh, there's a famous book called In God's Name, written by David Yallop, that Mark read. You know, he read ferociously. And he must have just thought, oh, you know, I'll do a play about this. And were you all open to that? Did you all think, OK, we'll do well, a play yeah. now? Yeah, we were getting our wages every week still, you see. And, it, what, you know, what an interesting thing, you know, working you know, with, uh, with these actors down in London. We only did the play there 
But uh, it was great. Uh, hey Luciani was my introduction to the band regarding drums. The title track was recorded at Amazon Studios in Liverpool. And I went down and Ian Brodie, who I bump into now and again, and he's, I think he's a superb producer, you know, them Lightning Seeds mm. records. It's just sound fresh still. Recorded me playing a, a floor tom over the middle eight of Hey Luciani. And so that was my introduction. We got costumes. I was a corrupt cardinal and I did have speaking lines. And were you nervous? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. But as I said before, Lee Bowery, who was in the play, I don't know what he played though. What, what did he play? I think he was an archbishop. Right. Because it? I remember his costume being very elaborate. Well, that, that would have suited him, wouldn't yeah. it? Australian lad, lovely lad. But I get stuck on my line sometimes and he'd prompt me. And made me feel, you know, chilled out about it all. It was very laid back, wasn't it? So we were three weeks in London, so we had a week of pre-production, didn't we? So it was rehearsals for a week. Right. And then the play, I think, was on for two weeks. Was that right? I think so. Yeah. I think you're right. And so for the first week, we had Charlie Hansen was the director, and he was in it as well. And he's now That's the man right. who directs Ricky Gervais. And Is he really? Everything he does. What about Carl Pilkinson? Did he do that? I don't know if he does Carl Pilkington. I like Carl Pilkington. I do. I love Carl (laughs) Pilkington. I can watch that again and again and again. (laughs) He's genius. From Stratford, isn't he? But poor Charlie, I don't know what he thought, because obviously he was used to working with actors. I was at college and I'd met Mark and he said, do you want to be in a play? And of course I said yes. And the rest of you were band members. Yeah, I think he enjoyed it. I think everybody did. We uh, we had such a great time, but I'm saying it was it was very laid back, wasn't it? There was none of us were that worried about it. No, not really. I remember the first week, and then on the Friday night, Mark went on the tube and Who did with? an interview with <laughs> <laughs> Michael Clark. No, he he did. It was. Do you not remember? It was it was a studio. It was a pre-recorded piece that he did. Right. And then they played it out in the show on the Friday. Hey, Luciani, you mean? Yeah, they played out his interview. Oh, not the music, though? No, just to promote. Oh, right, I didn't know that. Yes, because I remember him doing it, because we'd had production all week where we would go in and rehearse in the studios, and Mark was always in, like, jeans and a jumper. Mm-hmm. And then this press day, where there was lots of press, Yeah, from the Times, they were. Everybody, yeah, came to interview him, and he turned up in this long leather coat, his shades yeah. on, and I thought, what's Mark? Riding boots. What's Mark playing at? Black riding, but well, he was just living the part, that, you know. Of course, he loved it, didn't he? And a riding crop to boot. <laughs> but I don't. It didn't get favourable favourable reviews. But we enjoyed it. We had a great time. So did the crowd. Happy Mondays came down one night. Do you remember that? No, I don't. I think they must have been recording in London down the road, and so we're hanging out, and then we're going out clubbing it and all that later on. And the Smiths all came. Did they? Yes. Didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Because we all shared a house, me, you, Craig and Steve. In Earl's Court, wasn't it? In Earl's Court, yeah. And remember, the cleaners refused to go in after about three days because they said it was so dirty. What, your room? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you remember, we all shared a room. It was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, because I tried to wake you up one morning and you said, I said, Simon, we've got to go. And you went, no, it's got to be gradual. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember thinking, I don't know what that means. Yeah, the cleaners wouldn't come in because we made such a mess. Oh, okay. Because we had people back and none of us cleaned up. Did Di and Ed give us a lift in the van? Were they doing the sound? Di and Ed were doing the sound, right. yeah, I remember that. Were they that. staying at the flat? No, they weren't in our flat. There was only me, you, Craig and Steve oh, in our flat. 
Right, and um, that was But I remember one night, so we, we did the production, and the next day I saw you, obviously, in the flat. I said, oh, where did you get to last night? And you said, oh, Johnny came and Andy. And, uh-huh. and I stared at you and said, please don't tell me you're talking about the Smiths. Right, and you said, Yeah, and you said, oh, did you want to meet them? Well, I could have killed you. <laughs> but they were recording and sound. I've no idea what they were doing right. because I wasn't invited. I forgot all about that. Yes. I've forgotten a lot of things, Jackie. So have I. Don't worry, I'll remind you. It's terrible. No, we had such a great time, didn't we, doing that play? Yeah. And yeah. we had all the backstage stuff. Alana Pile was, was in the play. What's it called? That Comic strip. Comic strip, yeah, yeah. Um, there was only about two proper actors in it. The, a man who played... Was he the Pope? That was Steve. Oh, was it? Yeah, oh, it he, looked, some, he looked like him as well, the Pope. Somebody else. In a else. white robe and but, a mitre. I like playing, you know, once we've done our lines or whatever, we get behind, I get behind the kit, we do a couple of numbers. There was live music in it. Yeah, there which was. Which was great, and the songs in it were brilliant. Once I'd been playing, did I get off the kit again and say, uh, have, have some more lines? You must have it? done, yeah. Because right. I think the, the song finished the first half and then the second half. I don't think anybody filmed it. Well, I don't know, because I asked, I remember bumping into Mark and he threatened, he said, we're going to put this on again, you know. He wanted to put it on at the Hacienda. Right, well... And I said... Oh, 86. I, I said, oh, I don't think so. Mm. I don't know if anybody did record it. So in the play, Michael Clark was in it. What a lovely man he is. Oh, he was, he was just dancing, wasn't he? Lee Bowery, obviously, which was great. He was hilarious. Right, I'm getting confused now between the ballet and the play. Right, it? OK. Well, but I wasn't in the ballet. Not to worry. With my moves. No, um, not a ballet dancer. Not a ballet dancer. No, Hey Luciani was great fun. Yeah, it was. And so say all of us. So I'll move on now. Yes, what's your next date? Um, it's the Home Cinema in Manchester. Uh, Art House Cinema, I think they call it. Very nice place. Uh, I did used to go to the corner house there, opposite the Refuge Hotel near India House, where I lived quite a lot. And then they moved there. I do go and watch films there. I saw Cowboy Dave there. Not so long ago, well, a couple of years ago it was. And it was about a drug dealer who was murdered. It's a Happy Monday song, Cowboy Dave. And the coppers in the song is going, tell me what you know about Cowboy Dave. Tell me what you know about Cowboy Because <laughs> Sean Ryder, he knew this guy. Oh, he was a real person then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the cowboy bit, something to do with, uh, that, you know, the Indian chief living in Salford, I think. Uh, I might be wrong. So do you go to the cinema a lot? Maybe once every couple of months, if I fancy something. But I did go and see uh, a film premiere there, Mike Lee's Peter Lou, about the blanket men, you know, at Free Trade Hall, the massacre there, which we weren't taught, I wasn't taught about that at school. Kind of brought it to the fore the story of the Peterloo Massacre. They wanted, obviously, better rights, and the cavalry were sent in with sabres, and uh, lots of people died. And it was a peaceful protest as well. It was, yeah, it was. Just just behind uh, Free Trade Hall, I think it was actually took place. But Mike Lee was director. My cousin, Nico Miralegro, he, he was in it. Great performance by young Nico. Mike Lee, I met him after, and I said, it's a great film, I liked it. You know, I did. 
I said to Mike, oh, have you heard of the fall, Mike? <laughs> he went, yes, of course I have. Because like <laughs> he's from Presswich, I think, originally. But Nico was telling me, he was tough, you know, director, you know, when they were rehearsing and that before, and, yeah. you know, really testing him out, Nico. But he's been in loads of things, you know, including Hollyoaks. Ten Rillington Place, the remake of the film with uh, Tim Roth. Uh, he was in... <laughs> it was a good, he played Tim, who was uh, hung for the crime he didn't commit. But we'd watched that film, uh, me and Ian, you know, at school when it was on TV. It must have been about 73, with uh, oh, the actor that's in it, um, the brother of the wildlife guy. <laughs> Richard Attenborough. Dickie, yeah, Dickie. Dickie Attenborough. He was in it. What a superb performance that was, not yes, that? Yes, awful. It's pretty, pretty grim. I saw Dickie in the back of a Rolls Royce going down the M1 with this dead young girl. <laughs> <laughs> when, I was in the, when me and Mark were driving the other way, you know, we saw him <laughs> going past. That's home for you. Great rest, little restaurant, great bookshop. Though I noticed my book's not in it. Um, Rude. We're going to have well, to sort that out. That's what I thought. Go in. Everyone else is. Go in and mention it to them. I did, I, and they said they would, but I couldn't be bothered. You right, know. come on. It's not the it's not the attitude, Simon. <laughs> when you go to the cinema, what's your film of choice? Oh, blimey! Now you're asking. Well, anything that's at home, really. Oh, really? You see, I can't watch anything. I don't do horror. Right. Unless it's some. Sort I don't do of... horror anymore. I used to when I was at school. One of my favourite films I saw, uh, what they called in Coney Island, the gang, the gang wars, Warriors. Yeah, what's it called? It's called What the Warriors. Is it? Yeah, it was a great film. Uh, I love, I love watching that. So that was one of the first films that I can remember offhand. I'd seen Dinosaurs Rule the Earth with my mum and dad <laughs> <laughs> with Rackle Welsh. <laughs> you know, kind of uh, for wow. <laughs> I thought you might remember that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if it's not a rom-com, I'm not interested. Rom-coms? Nah, not, I don't really like them, really. Do you not? Not really. Do you mean Hugh Grant? No, I don't like Hugh Grant. I want something that's funny and uplifting. Yeah. If it's slightly miserable or... Unless I want a good cry and then I'll watch Funny Tell you what I do like, oh, Angel Heart, Robert De Niro, and all them De Niro films. Yes. You know, Casino. Godfather. Uh, all, all those. Great. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, with the... Uh, <laughs> Cape Fear. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. I actually fell asleep when I saw that. What? Yeah. I went to the pictures with my mum, to Bellevue Pictures. How can you <clears> fall asleep? I don't know, I must have been up the night before. But she didn't wake me up or anything, so she <laughs> must have realised I needed it. Have you ever seen Midnight Run? Uh, yes, I have. Robert De Niro yeah, and, and uh, yeah. Charles Grodin. Where is that? Um, Where is a bounty hunter? Bounty hunter. Yeah, it's good, that, isn't it? It's the greatest film ever made. Do you think so? Yes. Right. Go I on, mean, tell me a better film than Midnight Run. Apocalypse Now. No. Want to see that? No. Uh, Midnight Run is one of those films that you Midnight can... Midnight Express? No! <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the films that you can put on. It doesn't matter how many times you've seen it, you can still sit down and enjoy and watch that, it again. That's true. Yeah. Very true. And there's not many films that are like that. Trading Places, I, I can watch that one again and again. I like, I like the film Big. I thought that was good. Big? Thanks. He's good, him. Big is in my top ten favourite films of and, uh, all time. What's he called? Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. He's good, isn't he? Yes. Um, Catch Me If You Can. That's a great film. It got, it's got aircraft in that. Do you know airlines. why it's a good film? Because it's, he's in it. Well, one, because he's in it. 
Steven Spielberg. As I am. Two right. words. There you go. That's all you need with a film. Duel, that was a good film. Uh, oh. Steven Spielberg, you know, about the sales guy who I, has to drive across Arizona in the I've desert. I've never seen it. It's worth seeing. Great. They get chased by a truck driver and this big black dirty uh, tanker. He chases him, tries to kill him, you know, push him off the side of the canyon. Steven Spielberg is the greatest storyteller, I think. I yeah, don't think anybody is better than him as a director. He's, he's definitely up there, yeah, definitely. Who's better than Spielberg? I can't think of her. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a big one, isn't it, that? Home cinema. Yeah, it's yes, really good. we love it. I'll move on to my next one, which is a song called Halo. This was about five, six years ago. We put this band together called Stems, S-T-E-M-Z. The track's called Halo. It's a pop song, really good. It was the first time I'd worked with Neville Staple from the specials, because I worked with Terry Hall before that. Now Neville, you know, the two main players, weren't they? You know, vocalists. Uh, It's worth checking out. It's on YouTube. And I'm kind of this thing, this lucigenic thing that I'm preparing for it's a similar sort of thing actually you should give it a lesson if right, you can well, well let's add it to the soundtrack for this for this show and then Why people not? can give it a listen Halo, yeah. yeah okay did you help write it play drums on it no i didn't i didn't write it but I recorded at simon ding archer's studio who was another a fall member for a while and I what was neville like to work with dead cool yeah one minute he'd talk uh, all right, dear, how are you doing? <laughs> and then he'd go into a Jamaican patois, you know, depending on the situation. And it was dead funny to watch him switch between the two. So, uh, yeah, nice guy. OK, my next one is the actress Hilda Baker <laughs> from um, Farnworth, which is where I got sent uh, after I got moved on from County Hall and the chefs. I had the two girls doing it all for me. It was dead easy, cushy number. Hilda Baker, she was in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. She was best known for being in a sitcom called Nearest and Dearest, which you're probably not old enough to remember. Not really. Well, it was a firm favourite of Mark's. It was set in a uh, pickle factory somewhere in deepest Lancashire. (laughs) And she was the boss there. I think Jimmy Jewell might have been in it. She... Not only looked a bit like Mark's mum, you know, her hairstyle and everything, but she got her words all twisted and confused and she'd okay. use the wrong words. Yes. And Mark thought this was great. She said, well, my mum's just like that. <laughs> and she was, actually. You know, she made similar sort of words, but totally different meanings. And uh, this is what Hilda Baker in the show, Nellie Pledge, that's what, the start, that's what she was called, the character. And she had some catchphrases... One of them was, have you been, Walter? <laughs> <laughs> this old guy, who, who had to go to the loo all the time. <laughs> so she'd always check, you know, have you been, Walter? <laughs> and Walter's about 80, and uh, you go, whoa. <laughs> but Walter used to go, uh, you know, in a pub, we'd only have half, I'll have half, because of his problem of going to the loo all the time. But another catchphrase from Hilda Baker on Nearest and Dearest, is <laughs> he knows you know <laughs> which Craig used to use a lot you know when we were talking about Mark if we'd found out we'd been talking about him behind his back <laughs> he knows you know 
Okay, so we need a soundtrack for the letter H. What have you got? Okay, I've got Halo by Stems with a Z. Then I've got Beck's Cell Phones Gone Dead. I've got Off Broadway by George Benson. I've got Prince Charles and the City Beat Band in the streets. Fluffy Little Clouds by The Orb. This podcast was produced and edited by John. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by Colin McGrath, Joe Brown, Johnny Smale and Simon Wollstonecroft. And the artwork is by Lee Dyer. This has been Funky Size A to Z of Manchester. Thanks for listening to Funky Size A to Z of Manchester. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.